Hey everybody, Jimmy Smith on today's Unlocking the Cage podcast. I speak with Michael Venom Page about his upcoming BKFC crossover fight with Mike Perry. Also, I break down UFC 275 with Eve Edwards. That's right. The man has knowledge. He'll give it all to us about this weekend. Also, an explanation of the UFC financials from BloodyElbow.com's John Nash. It contains the word billion. A very special guest we have on now. Why? Well, called a lot of fights in Bellator, so I've had the pleasure of hanging out with MVP more than once. And a surprise announcement yesterday that he's taking on Mike Platinum Perry, bare knuckle to Ovo Arena in Wembley. Mike, let me know what is going on with this bare knuckle fight, man, against Mike Platinum Perry. I can't think of two guys who fight any differently than you and Mike (laughs) Perry, bro. You know, you know, I like to, I like to, to make noise in the, in the fight, in the fight world. So, um, uh, it was a, I'm fortunate enough to, to have better to support me on this, and yeah, it's just uh, the, the name Mike Perry came up, and I was just excited. I was like, yeah, let's, let's just make it happen. So, explain that to me because that was one of my questions coming up. Is wow, what does it mean for your Bellator future? Are you still with them? So they're okay with this. They allowed you to have a bare knuckle fight while still under contract with Bellator. Yeah, hundred But this is this is why um, this is why I'm such a fan of of Bellator. You know, I've been you know I've been allowed to box a couple of times while under yeah. contract. Um, even when I first actually was introduced to Bellator, I was already under contract with another organization at the time, and they were happy for for me to still be fighting in, in both promotions at the time. So I've, I've been fortunate enough to have that. Uh, it'll be allowed to do that from the beginning of my career with, with Bellator. So um yeah it's just uh it's a it's an amazing opportunity they did they did say to me I wouldn't be able to it wouldn't be likely for me to be fighting again until uh I think around October time so uh, and you know me I'm I'm I like to be yeah. active especially after a loss <laughs> as we've seen before so I was like you know what I need, I need to get straight back on straight back in and they said wait till October I was like I, I don't know if I can do that we we need to make something happen <laughs> So tell me about the, the the style and how that appeals to you. You have lightning fast hands. That's really your kicks are good, but you're really known for that 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 speed with your hands to be able to do bare knuckle, light gloves, right? Movement is emphasized, accuracy is emphasized, speed is emphasized. All the things you excel at. How excited are you about the style of this fight? Yeah, hundred percent. You know what I say? I feel like it's a. Uh... I, I, I was already already excited when I saw Bare Knuckle kind of make a shift from it to be like an underground thing because uh, I know even back in my dad's era, a lot of like the old school martial artists kind of went through the Bare Knuckle phase. Yeah. And even, even my coaches kind of went through that phase. So seeing it come back, I was already kind of excited that potentially one day I might do that. I didn't know it was going to be so soon. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's right up my street. It suits me perfectly. Um, I enjoy I enjoy combat full stop, but being able to to land my punches uh, and ex- expose these knuckles to somebody's face is a problem. <laughs> so speaking, of course, to Michael Venom Page, of course, uh, making his bare knuckle debut Saturday, August twentieth, at the Ovo Arena in Wembley. Uh, when you are when you talk about the history, one of the things I like about bare knuckle in the UK is there is a history of it in the UK that not so much in the states, but in the UK there's a long history of bare knuckle. Are you aware of that? Do you like that? Tell me about that as as, as a UK fighter yourself, man. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it's been um, it's been around for a long time, and again, when I was literally a kid, 
I would hear about these underground shows. Um, uh, and, you know, hearing, like like I said, a lot of uh, my senior kickboxing either instructors or, or uh, like, uh, um, like, uh, colleagues uh, in, the, in, the, in the industry and hear about the fights that they would have and, you know, see, I, I never got to go to any of the shows. Oh, no, sorry, I went to one, but I never really got to go to any of the shows that any of my guys were performing in. So now I'm just, I'm super excited. It, it's, it is like a, it is history for me in terms of my upbringing. So to be able to, I never thought I would ever be able to do it. So to be, to be able to do it, I'm, I'm super excited. Tactically, what's different? You know, you don't have the gloves to protect yourself. A lot of it's head movement, a lot of it's footwork. As you're sparring, getting ready for this thing, how do you pull that off in a controlled environment without the cuts and without, you know, hurting your knuckles? All these things, How has it been different at all from boxing training? Yeah, no, not, it's not not so much so. Um, the, the, the only thing that we're going to do a little bit more of is just the you know, conditioning of the knuckles. Um, it's not going to be on any any of my, uh, my my sparring partners' faces, so. <laughs> but um, it's, it's still boxing, and 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 these are the things that I do excel in. I excel in uh, hand speed. I excel in head movement. I excel in. I've been in fights for twenty five minutes, not getting hit. So you know, it's it's kind of unheard of. So um, this suits me. Suits me uh, fine. <laughs> Somebody like Mike Perry, who. Uh, you know, powerful. He's aggressive. He has that talent for sure. But you never wonder where he is. He's in front of you. You never wonder which yeah. way he's going. He's coming forward. That's just how he is. Is he tailor made yeah. for your style? He is, but he's still dangerous because you know he's the kind of person that I know you're gonna. You know, you know when you land that sweet, that sweet shot. Yeah. And normally people will fall over or they look rocked or they wobble. But he's the kind of person that was just still be looking at you like, okay, yeah, that's nothing. You know, I'm ready to go again. Yeah. Um, so that's the that's the, that's going to be the, the the dangerous thing. I can't get excited about that that, that sweet shot because he'll probably still be alive after it. So it's just a case of doing me, but keep insisting from start to finish until he falls over, or he's going to be a bit of a mess. When you think, when I think back on it, and 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 the, the the fighters you've fought in MMA that had kind of a similar style, I was thinking about people who might kind of uh, be like that a little bit. Uh, Caveman Rickles was a guy with a, a a simple style. He was known for his ability to come forward and take punishment and take damage. He questioned your heart before the fight. He said, "I'm going to take his heart and all this stuff." Made a big deal about it at the weigh-in. That seemed to get under your skin. I remember in, in boxing, Sergio Martinez, great boxer, known for his speed and all that stuff, and people kept saying there's this assumption that fast boxers or technical boxers don't have heart. What do you think of that assumption and people assuming that? What does that do to you, man? Uh, not much. It's kind of like uh, I get it in terms of people looking from the outside in. It's always stuff that they haven't seen before. Like if I was to show you videos of my training sessions every day, I'm in the deep end every single day. I'm in the deep end. Every time I go to the uh, to the gym, I'm in the deep end. I get hit with massive shots. I have to get back up and I have to keep going. This happens all the time, but it's just off camera. So yeah. I know my, you know what I mean? I know, I know where it's at. I know when it's needed. The thing is, I'm just not the type of fighter to, to lead with the, uh, uh, with you know, I'm a tough fighter. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to show everybody I'm a tough fighter. I'm trying to show everybody I'm how technical of a fighter I am, 
and I'm still a, I'm, I'm still a beast when it comes to you know landing certain shots and putting people away. So um, I don't think I need to show that, but if I have to show that, I will. Uh, is there a a relief in a sense? And of course, I'm speaking to Michael Venom Page making his bare knuckle debut uh, in Wembley to Ovo Arena, August twentieth. Is there a relief, as a lot of people tell me, from going from MMA to boxing or MMA to bare knuckle? They're like, man, I don't have to worry. I have to worry about two things. <laughs> I got to worry about you know his left hand and his right hand. Wow, I don't have to worry about the takedown, leg kicks, anything like that. Is it kind of liberating only having to worry about bare knuckle in this sense, coming from MMA? It's liberating in this moment, especially after my last fight. <laughs> yeah, but. In general, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't care much. I just enjoy combat. You know, if you tell me I'm doing a taekwondo fight, if you tell me I'm doing a kickboxing fight, if you tell me I'm doing a boxing fight, if I'm doing a jujitsu fight, as long as I know what I'm doing and I'm fighting, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm happiest. So I'll go out and do that. And right now, it's, it's, it's bare knuckle. So I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, speaking of that, your, 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 your last fight in Bellator to Logan Storley, a fight that crowd was not feeling it. Obviously, Scott Coker very vocal about his disappointment. Um, that it went to Logan Storley, all of these things where it was takedown, takedown, takedown. There was almost no damage in that fight, period. Uh, what's the frustration level coming off of a fight like that for you? You know what? Um, there was frustration, but I was, I just like to put it on myself in terms of I feel like I, I could have done a bit more. But to be fair, and credit to him, he's, he's an exceptional uh, wrestler we had a lot of wrestlers come in but there's a couple of things that he did quite different that slightly differently that was made the, like the get ups a little bit more awkward um but i always give myself a certain amount of time to be annoyed to be frustrated to be angry to be upset and after that i'm done and then it's a case of just yeah. progression and i do that to, i do that all the time you know win or lose i always have to go over the 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 the, the best points and, and the negative points so once i've done the negative points i'm i'm, I'm finished so I done that. Went back to my hotel room. I was there for about 15 minutes, just being annoyed at myself. You know, didn't get a result that I wanted. And then I went and partied. <laughs> and I was out. <laughs> I was out with all my friends and family. We had an amazing night. So, um, yeah, you know, that's that's me. That's how I do all things. Uh, I'm speaking also when I think about you and rematches. Douglas Lima, of course, first loss of your career. You had a rematch and you won that fight. Um, how does that translate? You talk about get over the frustration, you know, let it go. But you then make the tactical adjustments to get better. Does that begin immediately? Oh, yeah, no, no. That's the, that, that 100% happens uh, immediately. So even though I'm training for uh, the bare knuckle fight, uh, we, we start, I spend a lot of time in the gym. I'm, I'm doing a lot more work with my wrestling, a lot more work with my jiu-jitsu, thinking of different answers that I could have, you know, could have done in that fight. Uh, the, the positive thing is that the only thing he could have done was hang on me for his dear, for dear life. He didn't want to do anything else. He didn't care to progress. Um, he didn't care to really inflict any kind of damage. He's like, I'm going to hold you until, you know, the time's done and hopefully I, I, I get the result at the end of it. Um, and, he, you know, he achieved that. Uh, but I, I know for a fact, if I go back in there, if I make these adjustments that I know I can make, it's going to be a problem for him. He's not going to be able to do that again. So what are your goals going forward for, let's start with MMA and your Bellator career, of course. Uh, just came up short in your last fight against Logan Storley. Is your goal still champion at 170 in Bellator? Oh, no, 100%. I need to, you know, this, this is a, a, a time filler. You know, while, while Bellator doesn't have the shows uh, for me to jump in and be active, like, you know, after I lost against Lima, I fought five times that year trying to get back. 
Uh, and that yeah. was me. Like as soon as the fight finished, I was like, I was phoning Scott Coker. Like, so what can I do next? Uh, where, where can I go? Who's what shows? And I was, I was bugging him so much. He kept, you know, just giving me fights. And it's going to be exactly the same thing. I was, I've already been doing it. They've already said their cars, the cars are full up until October. I'm like, come on, I can't wait until then. Can we, can we do? Can I, can I box? Can I do anything else? This opportunity came up, jumped on that, and I'm eager to get back into to Bellator. So October, I'll be back. Uh, uh, then hopefully I get something maybe in December for as well. But I'm, I'm straight back in. All right, so I got to get your Ali prediction for this bare knuckle fight against Mike Platinum Perry, August twentieth, Ovo Arena, Wembley. What's your prediction for this fight? What are the fans going to see? Oh, it's going to see something very special because uh, it's a place I, I excel very much in. Um, as you say, I think he's 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 prime suspect for my style. Um, it's just going to depend on how tough he is. He could go out like Rickles. He might even just give up. <laughs> he might even just give up because he's not going to be able to, 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 to land a shot. It's going to be frustrating, frustrating as hell. Um, he's going to be a bloody mess and um, or he's just going to he's going to go to sleep early. The snooze button's here. MVP, it is always a pleasure talking to you, my yeah. man. It, and it's been always a while. great. <laughs> Loved calling your fights. Great catching up to you again. BKFC London will be broadcast as part of the BKFC Plus subscription for $4.99 per month on the BKFC app. MVP, great catching up with you. Good luck with your training, my man. Thank you, man. Thank you. Take care. Busted Open is your daily home for all things pro wrestling. Join Dave LaGreca, WWE Hall of Famers, Bully Ray and Mark Henry, and hardcore wrestling legend Tommy Dreamer. Dave LaGreca here. From WWE to AEW, Impact, New Japan, Ring of Honor, and more, we talk it all. Whether you grew up watching Ric Flair or Stone Cold Steve Austin, Busted Open is your place for pro wrestling. Busted Open, Mondays through Saturdays at 9 a.m. East on Fight Nation, Sirius XM Channel 156. Eve of the pay-per-view with Eve Edwards. We love it. So uh, looking at this, let, let, let's start off with kind of the easy pieces here. Um, we've been discussing Yidi Prohachka and his status as a contender. He's had two fights in the UFC, both of them second-round knockouts. Hasn't, you know, really gone a lot of miles with a lot of top talent. It's kind of been two, and then he's in this title fight. What's your... Curiosity about him. Are there a lot of questions about Yidi Prohachka as a contender to you when you look at him? I understand why there are questions about him as a yes. contender, uh, but the division is 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 kind of in flux. Ever since John yeah. pulled out of, of the division and decided to move up, it's just kind of been a, 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 a free for all for the for the light heavyweights. You know, Jan Blakovich stepped up. Dominated in his fight against Dominic Reyes, but you know, then he went out there and he lost to Glover. Glover is one of those guys who who everybody old school loves. He's a former teammate of mine, so of course I love Glover. And um, I don't know, man. I just feel like the, the the light heavyweight division is is up in up in the air right now. And with Yuri Prohaska coming in, being such a dynamic um, fighter that, that he just kind of fits right into the top of that division. And and him getting a title shot is not. It doesn't seem so crazy to me, even though he only has two fights inside the UFC right now. Yeah, I understand why he would get the title shot, especially, you know, dynamic performances, exciting stuff, highlight reel stuff. But if you're a coach and you're talking to, you know, Glover Teixeira, right? He's a teammate here. So Glover calls you and says, hey, man, I need some help on this fight, man. What do you think? Would you bring up, hey, he's only had short fights. 
We don't know everything this guy can do. We don't know how he handles deep water, how he handles adversity. Would you have Glover Teixeira kind of test how the how the young buck handles some adversity? Would that be part of it to you? Uh, I feel like that would be a part of it to somebody who does it, who doesn't have the connections that I have, right? But uh, <laughs> like Mo Wall and I are good friends, right? Right. Uh, Mo's fought this guy twice. And yep. um, I was talking to Mo, and Mo was like, man, the guy doesn't get tired. He doesn't slow down, you know. Um, and, and so I, I wouldn't put money into banking on, on trying to push the limits and see what he looks like in the championship rounds. Um, I, I would hope if, if I can get him there, that would be the case, but I, I wouldn't put money on it. I wouldn't bank on it. I wouldn't put, you know, try to bet the house on it. I, I would still try to put, put the pace on him, but we're talking about Glover Teixeira, right? Glover is, is on the older side of the fight game, um, and, and Glover is tough, and then the speed is, I feel like that's something that's going to be a problem. So if Glover wants to, wants to uh, put, test, test him in the long range of the fight, he's going to have to slow the fight down himself. Because for cry, for cry, I can never say these these European Prohatska. names, man. Prohatska, yep. is just he's um he's quick, he's fast, he's he's explosive, and um Glover's on on the on the I won't say the wrong side of forty, but Glover's on the high on the, on the high side of it, and as far as the age for this fight, and um that 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 speed and that youth is a thing, but. Experience is also a thing, man, and Glover has so much of it, and I think he can use that to his advantage in this one. Whew, this is a fun fight, man. I'm, yeah. I, I'm disappointed that it's overseas, but I'm glad Glover's getting the headline of pay-per-view. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great way to see it. Let me ask you a little bit, speaking to Eve Edwards, that's right, pay-per-view Eve with Eve Edwards. Um, when you look at Glover Teixeira and his experience, and you know this guy well, former teammate of yours, I was talking to my audience about it, and I said the mentality to become champion and the mentality to keep your title are often two different things. A lot of times you kind of have to mentally reload, right? Like, okay, I won the title. It was this great story. 42 years old. He becomes champion. And now it's like you kind of have to reload and go, okay, now I have to do a title run, which is oftentimes a different kind of mentality. Do you believe Glover has that mentality to make to not just become champion but to make a run at light heavyweight? That's much harder to do. I believe that Glover is the kind of person who has that mentality, right? We're talking about a guy who who was looked at as, as this, this phenom, but he just had so many problems finally getting into the UFC. But when it eventually happened, John Jones is sitting at the top of the division. You know, so, so Glover, but he kept grinding, kept grinding, kept grinding, and he got his shot. And when he got that shot, he made the most of it. So, I, I mean, having that gold around your waist, I, I, like it was something that we all aimed for. And I can only imagine that it kind of revitalizes somebody who's been in this for so long. I think Glover may, may, may have that belt now. And, you know, he may want to retire with that. And, say, and he probably has a number in his head. You know, he may have uh, two, three, four fights left. And... Could be more than that, but let's say Glover decides he has four fights left and he wants to retire with the belt. I think waking up every morning, seeing that belt, and knowing that you're the one that everybody's gunning for, that can motivate Glover to get in the gym and do everything that he needs to do. And he just has to stay sharp in the ring because inside the cage because, I mean, he's the champion, and which proves that he has the tools to be the man. And at the same time, he's competing against the best in the world and still doing so great at the age that he has, at the age that he is. 
I want to remind everybody who's listening to pay-per-view E with Eve Edwards that all of us are on the other side of 40. All of us. All right. Jimmy Smith, Eve Edwards, <laughs> we're on the same side of 40. So before we start talking about old man stuff, we're talking about each other, too. Um, before we move on from the, the, the main event, I got to know um, – that old man jujitsu of Glover, it's just pressure and punishing. What is it like being on the wrong side of that? I know you have many, many times. <laughs> Fortunately, I haven't had to do it too many times because he's fighting 50 pounds heavier than me. But, right. man, Glover is a monster on top, right? And um, I, I really think that's the best opportunity in this fight for, for, for Glover to, to, to catch uh, Yuri running into a shot and or get the takedown. I feel like Glover's top pressure is going to be, it's, he's going to be like a monster on top. Glover is really, really effective from the top position. doesn't matter if you can replace guard on him. Even if you're in his guard, you're going to have a hard time. And I think that he will recognize that, you know, slowing the, the younger man down is so much easier when I'm on top of him than when we're both on our feet. So I, I believe if Glover gets the takedown, he's going to be able to apply so much pressure, slow the fight down, and Glover's jiu-jitsu is pretty solid, man. I would not be surprised if he gets to that back and, and sinks in a rare naked or just lands some solid ground and pound from a top position and is able to take out the young buck. Uh, speaking, of course, to Eve Edwards, it's all about pay-per-view Eve with Eve Edwards. Um, the co-main <laughs> event, Valentina Shevchenko against Tyler Santos, where do you put Shevchenko all time, regardless of gender? Is she one of the best to ever do it? Absolutely one of the best to ever do it, especially when you look at her division. She's, she's the bar. You know what I mean? She's the bar. Yes. And you, you have these things for a while. Um, Khabib was the bar. John Jones was the bar. John Jones was the bar. It's just that all these guys, people, they work so hard at becoming, becoming who they are. And I just... I think that Shevchenko is is that. Like, all these women are trying to get to the point where they are at her level, and nobody's there yet. She's just so dominant, and I completely think that she – I totally think that she's the most dominant woman in the game, and she's going to control everything. Uh, so when you look at Santos, her ability as a, uh, as a contender – uh, what do you think she has to do to pull off the upset? She's experienced 19-1, and one, excellent kickboxer. Is it about um, Shevchenko maybe looking past Santos and that is her best best hope, or is there something she can do in the octagon to, to score the upset? Man, even if Shevchenko, Shevchenko is looking past her, she is going to have to get lucky, in my opinion. She's going to have to land a yeah. big shot um, pretty early, I believe. Um, because we've seen it happen before. Guys like 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 we I brought up somebody else, John Jones, right? Um, he's in there with, with Alexander Gustafson, and and this yep. is a tough fight. He didn't he kind of looked past him, didn't prepare properly for it, and you know as the fight goes on, he he figures out, man, this guy's not a walkover. I I got, I'm gonna have to step up, and and he has the skills to do that. And then we see the second fight, and he just runs through Gustafson, right? Um, if, if Valentino is to look by Santos, like Santos has maybe a round, maybe 30 seconds, you know, to la I just feel like Valentino is just so much ahead of the game. And Santos is, I think she's a valid contender, but it's just that Valentino is so far ahead of everybody, man. It's like Anderson in his prime. 
John in his prime, Khabib, you know, uh, like there is a very few people who are like this, and I think she's one of them. So moving on to a rematch of one of the greatest fights I've ever seen. I think it's one of the best <laughs> in MMA history. Zhang Weili, Yoani, and Jaychik. How can either one of these ladies be the same after the war they went through with each other? What does that take out of you? What have you seen taken out of fighters going the 25 minutes they went with each other last time out? You know, you see it after their fights in the next one, right? When especially the person yeah. who loses the fight, that, that seems to be the case. The person who loses one of those wars, you, you can tell if their next fight, if, if they don't have, if they're not the same. They, they, they get what, what I like to call, oh, with Raw, actually I got this from Robbie Lawler. He called it PTSD. You know, he said that, you know, yeah. after these fights, you have, you have this trauma in you and um, some people just don't bounce back from that. Some people thrive on that though, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised with with Joanna, if Joanna is the kind of thrive thrive in that in that in that environment, because I mean, her next fight this this is this is the next fight for her. Her last fight was was with Zhang Weili, and yeah, she didn't she hasn't had anybody else, but she has she gets to get back in there. The lady who got put a put an L on her record. Meanwhile, you know Zhang Weili went in there and she lost two to uh, to 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 Rose Namajunas. She wants to get back on track. This is, I mean, it's two different stories, I believe, for both these women. And I think com- coming into the second one, if anything helps, anything outside of being across from that woman again helps, I think it's the fact that, that Joanna hasn't had to face anybody else in that interim. Meanwhile, Zhang Weilei has faced somebody, and, and she has that taste, that, that, that bitter taste of loss in her mouth from somebody else. And, yeah, she may feel like, oh, well, I beat this lady. I'm going to go back in there and do it again. But if, if, if Joanna comes out and, and she just feels different, she feels tougher. I've had a couple of rematches before in my career. And uh, facing Aaron Riley the second time, I, he felt the same to me. Facing um, um, Hermes Franca the second time, Hermes Franca was a little bit tougher. He was a little bit different. Right. And I had to bite down on that one. There was a point in that fight where he had a guillotine and it was in. And I was like, I am going out or I'm getting out. Those are the choices because I'm not tapping. Unfortunately... My head was bald, and I was able to slip my head out of that one. Um, these ladies have here, so that's not going to be the case. And on top of that, you know, I just think Joanna, Joanna, I'm again, once again, she's an ATT teammate. Um, she trades with Mike Brown, who's one of my best friends. Of course, I'm rooting for her, but Zangwele is no easy test. But I do believe that, that Joanna coming back to this one, facing Zangwele last, I think she, she, she has that taste in her mouth that, that she wants to get out with some revenge. And I feel like Wele just has that bitter taste of loss in her mouth. And, and I don't really know how tough Zhang Wele is. Like, she, she, she got to the title pretty quickly. She, she's, you know, she's a big phenom over in China, a big market, you know. I, I just, I, I'm really looking forward to that one because, like you said, that was one of the best fights I've ever seen. And um, if they bring it back at any, anything close to that level, it'll be fun again. But that takes a lot out of you. And I think Rose, though, I'm sorry, not Rose. I think Joanna. She, she just I believe she's going to want it more going into this one. Last thing I'm going to ask you before I let you go, Eve, what are you looking for in Ioana Janjic in that first round to make sure that two-year layoff isn't covering her with rust? What would you look at to make sure that that two years hasn't 
robbed her of a lot of her timing. What are you looking at as a coach and as a as a as a media member who's informed, man? What are you looking for? I'm looking to see if she's able to transition or, or play her defense in the middle of her offense. If she can mm. throw shots, throw her offense, and see the punches and the kicks coming back at her immediately. If she's not getting countered, if she's recountering counters, then I feel good about Joanna early in this fight. But if she's if her timing is off, if she lands a couple, if she throws a couple shots and she's getting countered and she's backstepping because of those counters, I feel like that may be a little bit of ring rust. Now, um, ring rust can get knocked off pretty quickly. So, so I believe Wele, if, if that's the case, she's going to have to jump on it. But if Joanna's sharp in those exchanges and she's able to pick up on her defense immediately off of her offense, also angling out after her combinations, I think she's going to do fine. Eve, it is always a pleasure uh, picking your brain, man. Uh, pay-per-view Eve with Eve Edwards before every pay-per-view. You always kick the knowledge, man. Really appreciate it. Eve Edwards, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us, bud. Jimmy Smith, my man, appreciate you always. Inside the Green Room with three-time NBA champ Danny Green. Certain superstars, yes, you can referee them somewhat differently. They can have a little more leeway with certain things. But to have Draymond to be in that same category as a superstar when a lot of us don't see him in that role or in that category, that's where it becomes an issue. You're a superstar in your role, which means you're a superstar role player. I think you should referee like a very good role player. Listen, subscribe, and review Inside the Green Room with Danny Green on Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. A very special guest joining us from BloodyElbow.com, John Nash, who, uh, his article right now, I'm looking at at BloodyElbow.com, documents show UFC now makes over $1 billion, with a B, a year, minimal costs, and more growth expected. So, John, number one, uh, in the break, you were praising the way I talk about pro wrestling. Go ahead and continue with that. Just, I didn't mean Oh, to yeah. I, I just, I'm not a guy. I don't watch yeah, pro I wrestling. Just... I don't. Uh, I haven't watched it since like the late 80s. Uh, you know, uh, WrestleMania 3 might have been the last for me around then because I, that's when I discovered Loved it. Hagler Leonard and I, I went on a different direction. But uh, through osmosis, because MMA is so intertwined with wrestling, I do know a lot about pro wrestling, and I find it—I just find it entertaining the way you speak as a regular guy, not a wrestling fan. You you speak in a way that people that don't follow wrestling can actually understand and, and appreciate what's going on. So I, I find that interesting. I appreciate. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much. So let's get enough about me. Enough about me. I'm sorry. Let's enough about me. Let's get back to your article. Where does this information come from in terms of the? You hear all kind of numbers kicked around, right? Oh, so and so said this, and this is the this is what the UFC is making. This is what a fighter is getting paid, and so many smart journalists point out like. Look, we don't know the source of this information. Where does this information for your article come from? Explain it to the fans. Two, two primary sources. The first one is every quarter Endeavor, the parent company of the UFC, files with the SEC uh, a 10K and a, and a 10Q report. And what that is, it shows their investors you know, what, what's going on with the company. And in that is a group, a segment called Own Sports Properties, of which the UFC makes the bulk of the own sports properties, the revenue, the the earnings, everything there. So they have that number released every quarter. So we can see what the revenue for own sports property is, what's the earnings are, what, you know, just a bunch of statistics, you know, what certain costs are, but it doesn't break down specifically to the UFC. But we also get Moody's every year does a, a report and analysis. And in the Moody's report, they give us stats. And some of the stuff is like, they tell us exactly the UFC over the last 12 months made over a billion dollars. 
that's specific. They also go into some other details, but they also give us some numbers like a leverage. And what that is, is how many times is their EBITDA, their earnings go into their debt? Well, that's we know what that is. It's 5.8, but we don't know what their debt is. But if we go back to the other SEC report that they filed Endeavor did, that specifically tells us how much debt the UFC has. And so we can calculate their EBITDA using the two together. And that's where some of the numbers come is by merging the two. What surprised you most when you looked at the raw numbers, the raw data, as you said, where they came from? What surprised you most as someone who's been covering the sport for a long time? Well, nothing really surprised me because this is this is consistent for the UFC. They make a lot of money. They're doing very well. The the one surprise is how how much they've been able to continue their growth that they've been seeing through the pandemic. That it hasn't stopped. In fact, anything it's sped up. The ESPN deal we've seen it speed up the more revenue they're making and the higher earnings they're making. All that sped up. I guess the one thing is they gave us um, a leverage for their for their free cash flow. And we could use that to figure out what some of their expenses are that, you know, that goes, that's supposed to be deducted from EBITDA to make profit. And that free cash flow shows that they're what they spend in taxes for the UFC and what they spend on CAPEX capital expenditures. In other words, the stuff to grow the sport, the additional, you know, they always say we're growing the sport, the additional stuff they have to spend to build like a, 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 a new, a new PI performance Institute somewhere. That's pretty low. That doesn't take up a lot of money. And so when you deduct that and their interest payments, they show a lot of money available, well over $300 million every year they should have, available to distribute to, to the bosses, Endeavor. So when you look at it that way, about, you know, as you say, contrasting what they need to do to put into growth and what they're actually keeping, um, if you are paying attention to the economy right now, a lot of the difficulty is – a lot of tech companies did great in the pandemic because people were working from home. You needed Zoom. You needed all this technology to actually do things. People were watching things on Amazon Prime and Netflix as opposed to going somewhere. When things shifted and we started getting out again, they didn't make plans for when people wouldn't be as desperate for their products. And those adjustments have caused kind of a contraction economically. Uh, what do you think about the UFC's ability to not have that, where even though we've had more entertainment options and we've been able to now go out and do other things and, and every sport is out, not just the UFC, what is, in your opinion, allowed the UFC to ride this wave that a lot of companies haven't? Well, the one thing they've done, and they, they talk about this in their earnings call and in interviews, yeah. is they've gotten rid of what they call the lumpiness. They've got everything's contractual revenue, at least the majority is now. So so they don't have to worry about a contraction. They don't. The, the parent company, Endeavor, has to worry about the economy going down. Uh, ESPN has to worry about people canceling their subscriptions or not buying pay-per-views. But the UFC is guaranteed the money. They don't, they're not worried that the account, we might go into a recession because they're guaranteed the money from the sponsors, from the TV deal, everything. So they're not going to see that. They might see some contraction if the economy goes down, but not much because they've got guaranteed money. And that's, that's a big deal. And what that guaranteed money means, I mean, you know, we, we always say the UFCs, oh, they're, they're the, the promoters are the ones taking the risk. But truth is, the UFC has no risk in, in many ways. They've got that money already guaranteed. All they need to do is find 20 fighters to show up and they'll get a paycheck from all the people that have already contractually signed up to get that event. One of the quotes for me that I find very, very interesting is Moody reports hint that very little, if any, of the additional revenue revenue is earmarked for the fighters. For people that don't seem to understand business, uh, which you get a lot of those in MMA, uh, why aren't the fighters making more? Look, 
What you make doesn't depend – if you work for Amazon and Amazon had a great year, that doesn't mean they're paying their rank-and-file employees anymore because the company's doing better. People have trouble understanding that there's not necessarily a uh, correlation between how the company's doing and how individual fighters are. And they're going to pay as little as they possibly can. Any business would. Um, This idea that, as you said, none of – little, if any, of the additional revenue is earmarked for the fighters. How much of a story do you think that's going to be in the coming months? I, I don't know if it'll be much. This is information we've known for a while. Every right. time something comes out, <laughs> I mean, when the when the sale happened in 2016, UFC, we, we got documents from the antitrust lawsuit that leaked it, showing that they they planned conservatively to keep fighter pay at 19% of the revenue or below. We have in the presentation that came out just around the time of the sale that every, uh, was it, every pay-per-view would give $25 more to their earnings. So in other words, they're taking the vast bulk of the pay-per-view. They were guaranteed they were going to keep that money. The same, you know, we can go down the line that uh, uh, Morgan Stanley has a thing projecting what their next TV deal was, and 85% of that next deal will go to profits, basically. So we know for a while now, none, none of it's surprising that the, the large bulk of it is is earmarked to the, the promotion, the company, and not the fighters. I mean, what's interesting to me is in a way you can kind of compare, contrast this with, you know, the story that around Haney versus Kambosis. Right. Everybody's making this big deal. Look at the money Kambosis made. And he made a ton. But the reason he made a ton is he was able to leverage winning that belt and then demanding because ESPN wanted to have a title fight on their broadcast and Haney wasn't locked anybody. Him and DeBella, his promoter, could ask for a bunch of money. <clears throat> Fighters in the UFC, they don't have that option. You know, they're signed to the UFC already. They're only going to fight for the UFC. They're going to fight for the title. I mean, it's just a different environment where you cannot leverage that. And the UFC has all the leverage. So they get to keep the money. I want to ask you something. I'm speaking to John Nash from BloodyElbow.com. His article on BloodyElbow.com, please check it out. Documents show UFC now makes over $1 billion a year, minimal costs, and more growth expected. When you talk about the contradiction, uh, the, the contrast between boxing and MMA, I was trying to explain to somebody a couple days ago, and I want to know what you think of this comparison. Uh, somebody asked me about Dana White's comments about boxing's a broken business. I'm not getting involved in boxing. Why would I? Da, 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 da. Somebody asked me on the street. It wasn't on my show. They said, um, why isn't Dana White getting involved in boxing? And I said, it's like Tony Soprano getting a job at the bank. Where Tony Soprano lends money. That's what he does. Big part of what he does. Tony Soprano walks into the bank and goes... Hey, can I charge a 20% VIG and break their legs if they're late? And the bank goes, no, you can't do that here. Well, it's a broken system. Well, it's not a broken system. It just doesn't allow you to do what you have been doing. Yes, you both loan money, but the idea that someone who is in a position of power without a ton of regulation would walk into a business that has a lot of regulation and the individual people, the boxers you just mentioned, have a ton of power, Dana's never, ever going to do that. No, it, you, that you can't, sense? and you can't burn down the promotion after you bust it out. That that's not right. an option in fighting. Right. So, yeah, no, I mean that makes sense. There's a there's a, someone quoted to me something that Ari Emanuel supposedly said, and I it's you know it's, I I'm not 100 certain he said it, but it was quoted to me that this is something he said that the problem with boxing is boxers get 70 percent and I get 30 percent when I want I should get 70 percent and they should get 30 percent. 
Right. And so that, in other words, that kind of shows why they're not getting into boxing because the margins are very low. The mar- if you look at boxing promoters, traditionally make ten percent or less in margins. They're fighting to make profit. The UFC, we're looking at fifty percent margins. And so, why would you? Why would you even want to get into boxing? Why would you want to waste the money when you could just continue to grow MMA and make you know much more money on your return, much safer? You don't have to worry about competition. You don't have to worry about anything else. You don't have to worry about the lawsuits that come with boxing because the boxers have rights. They can take you. They take you to court more often, so they don't have to worry about any of that stuff. So yeah, there's no there's no reason. I think that's what Dan. You know, they they had an idea I think to get into boxing, and then they saw that the risk is not worth it. They stepped back. Uh, speaking, of course, to John Nash from Bloody Elbow, one thing your article points out that was brought up in the, the documents you looked at is not necessarily the changing nature, but um, this is from Moody's, uh, from your article. Uh, Moody's does note that the potential threat from competition from other MMA leagues may, quote, uh, which may lead to a higher competitive environment for fan interest and successful fighters over time. They also note, quote, pending lawsuit brought by former MMA fighters alleging monopolistic behavior has the potential to impact UFC's profitability and operations. Let's just start from the beginning. Which of these two factors do you think is going to be the biggest issue for the UFC in the next coming five, ten years? I, I think the lawsuit potentially, I mean, who knows what the final outcome, but the lawsuit actually impacts the other one because if the yes. lawsuit's successful or the UFC is forced to even change their contracts more, that makes the possibility of com- competition more likely. So if the lawsuit goes away, then the, the risk from competition lessens. So that, I think they're kind of intertwined. But I would say the primary concern is probably the lawsuit because of the potential damages. And it, even if, the let's say, the odds are low that it goes forward, the, the potential ramifications of that are so vast that that's obviously, to me, the, the bigger concern. Uh, when do you think the UFC, I mean, the UFC has addressed it a little bit. They've attached sunset clauses to their contracts. They run out at a certain point, which they never used to. Um, we're seeing that with Francis Ngano. He says, hey, look, I can wait until the end of next year and my, when, my, when my contract comes out. Or do you think we're going to see more of those kind of pre-lawsuit concessions? Whereas, look, we, we don't want this to go forward. The one we can do it is nip it in the bud by making changes ourselves, self-regulating a little bit more. Do you think we're going to see more of that in the upcoming years? Yeah, well, I think they've done – I mean, I don't know how much more they've done. They've done a, a bunch of smaller changes to their contract, yeah. but enough that they might think that that will limit any future damages. I guess – so I don't I don't see it doing more unless if the if the lawsuit progresses and the judge grants some class certification and moves on and it looks like that it's going to be a serious threat they might then say listen we're going to even we're going to restrict our contracts even more because the risk of future damages are now greater you know right now we're worried about the past damages but we don't want to accrue more damages going forward if the judges find that we've been continuing to engage in this this these violations of antitrust law so then i could see them doing it but for now i think this is what we have now in their contracts is probably the best we'll see which are good, better than they were. They're not great, but they're better than what contracts were. And in some ways, they're better than the competitors' contracts. Speaking of John Nash from Bloody Elbow, the, the, the structure of what you're talking about, as you said, guaranteed money, not a lot of risk for the UFC. We've seen in the past people like Conor McGregor, John Jones, the pay-per-view needle movers, right? Jorge Masvidal, the one, Nick Diaz, uh, Nate Diaz, uh Kamar Usman, I could keep going on and on, where you see pay-per-view numbers with these stars. Is their leverage going down as the UFC depends less and less on those every so often big pay-per-views? When, as you talk about guaranteed money, don't have to worry about anything else. Do you see the leverage of the major stars going down in the UFC? Is that a side, side effect of all this? 
Oh, I, I think definitely has gone down. In fact, you, you look back when the sale happened, they had a, a warning that for the next few years until the, you know, we get a new TV deal uh, because we took on so much debt to buy the company for the next few years, we're at risk of for fluctuations in whatever the interest rates are. So they, they, you know, they weren't making enough. They made enough to cover their payments on those, those loans they took out, <clears throat> but they were worried that if the interest rates went up, that that would gobble up whatever they're making. And so there was a moment where they needed what you remember they were throwing any fight they could at the you know yes bisbing versus uh, gsp they were letting connor go fight mayweather that happened in that period when they needed whatever they could get now though after they sign that espn deal and they get that guaranteed huge guaranteed money no longer are they dependent on the the volatility of the, the pay-per-view market they don't need they don't need a star that can draw i mean they still would like it probably but they don't need them because they're guaranteed a minimum amount so as we're moving forward, everything looking rosy right now for the UFC. If your job is looking ahead for possible road blocks or problems ahead for the UFC, not this year, maybe next year, next couple of years, what do you think are going to be the big financial issues for the UFC over the next couple of years? The things they're looking out for, what would they be to you? Well, I mean, the biggest one I think concern has got to be of some sort of blowback or lack of interest in MMA caused by probably like a death in the cage. I think that's the biggest concern. Always got to be the sure. biggest concern. Yeah. You got to do whatever you can to prevent someone from dying in the cage. I think that'd be the biggest concern. Uh, the other concerns, I mean, I'm not, if I'm them, I'm not probably worried about competition really that much because it, it, the competition is limited. It's We're not in a position yet where competition can really put a dent in their business. In the future, that could possibly happen, but now not. I think that even though I think they're outside chances, I think, the, you know, if I'm them, the two big concerns and probably easily to worry about it, I mean, easily to negate is the antitrust lawsuit, which they're doing right now in court, and any potential expansion of the Ali Act, which, you know, I mean, Congress is cheap and your your opponents are not rich, so you can easily outspend them and make sure that never make gets any ground. Uh, John, it is an absolute pleasure having you on. Love your perspective from bloodyelbow.com. John Nash, thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you, sir. Check out the article, bloodyelbow.com. The title is, that's right, Document Show UFC now makes over $1 billion a year. Minimal costs and more growth expected. Unlocking the Cage with Jimmy Smith is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Michael Russo. The associate producer is Kelly Murphy. Sound design by Nuri Balin. Special thanks to SiriusXM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. And SiriusXM Fight Nation program director, Marissa Rivas. SiriusXM Podcasts.